Welcome to the Primate Cast. I'm your host, Chris Martin. And I'm Andrew McIntosh. Now, Andrew, our last podcast was with Franz DeWall. And in case our listeners missed out on that one, please be sure and check it out. Yeah, and also don't miss out on the chance to see the video of Chris introducing the telenoid to Dr. Franz DeWall. That's well right. on YouTube. That was from when we visited a robotics laboratory with him. It was really a shame that we didn't talk about that during the podcast because... Uh, we had a really great time there, and uh, I'm sure a lot of interesting stories could have come out of that. So we'll be sure to get we'll be sure to get friends uh, on that topic the next time we interview them. Absolutely. So today we're going to introduce the second of our series of five podcasts from the IAS conference, and today we're going to be joined by Dr. Bill McGrew. Now, Bill is emeritus professor of evolutionary primatology in the division of biological anthropology in the Department of Archaeology and Anthropology at the University of Cambridge. Now, he's had a long and illustrious career in the field of primatology uh, and as a self-proclaimed chimp chaser, and he's also a world expert on chimp, chimpanzee material culture. Now, he's currently uh, involved in a number of projects, but these include the development of the field of cultural primatology and, uh, interestingly, primate archaeology. Right, and that's a project that's uh, being taken place in West Africa with uh, some students that do a lot of work here at PRI, like Susanna Carvalho. Right, you have a fairly long-term collaboration going with Professor Matsuzawa at Bosu in West Africa. That's right. So we asked him about his interactions with Japanese primatology, and that's where we're going to start the interview. As we so often do. So here's Dr. McGrew. My history with Japanese primatology goes back almost 40 years. I came here first in 74, hosted by Toshisada Nishida, and have come back periodically over the years, more recently in, in connection with PRI. But of course, as someone who's been a chimpanzee chaser for 40 years and has gone for breadth rather than depth, that is, rather than commit myself to a single field site, instead flitted around from west to east to central Africa, I run into Japanese primatologists <laughs> in all those places. So fair enough. I think there's been an ongoing and I hope mutually advantageous relationship with Japanese primatology. So for you, how has that was something that you mentioned in your talk here at the IAS as well? But so for you, how does that um, compare then? So you talk about breadth versus depth. I mean, what has that allowed you to do, for example? I think it's allowed me to be a little more self-indulgent than a person who is responsible for the ongoing uh, commitments that a, a long-term field site entails. I have immense admiration for people who take on a commitment and then stick to it for, in some cases, decades. I mean, Nishida comes to mind as the person who not only started Mahale back in 65, but who went out not every year, but almost every year until, you know, very, very recently. And uh, that, that's wonderful. But what I wanted to do was to take particular questions to particular places where they could best be answered, at least. Uh, that was my hope. So, when, so you've been to so many field sites on so many different times, and I'm wondering, when you, when you typically go to a field site, do you go there with a question in mind? And, and, and kind of think about that while you watch the chimps? Or do you kind of watch them and, and let the questions come to you? Or how, what's your method for doing field work as someone that goes for breadth? I think that's changed over the years. Um, when we started the Asterix site in uh, the mid-70s, we had definite ideas about what it would be like to work with a savanna population of chimpanzees. That is, it was very environmentally, ecologically driven. 
On the other hand, when I was in Tanzania this past summer, I was interested in, in some very specific aspects of, of pounding technology. So I think it's horses for courses. You know, it, it depends on where you are at the stage of your career and where you are at the stage of your intellectual development and what the opportunities are. I shamelessly parasitize my former students. I, I would be straightforward in that. If they found interesting field sites, then I'm probably likely to turn up there. But you've been able, in, in that respect, to have some really important insights and synthesize a lot of data that have been collected from those various sites. I hope so. Um, time will tell. But I think there is, an, well, let's put it this way. I think there is a necessity for there to be people who do the in-depth studies, and I think there's also a utility value to people who stand back and do the breadth stuff, and maybe there's a balance there, it's a balance polymorphism or something. So one of the things that may be most relevant to that, especially in current conversations within primatology, is the idea of culture, mm -hmm. um, particularly uh, across chimpanzee populations where it's probably most talked about. But can you, maybe I just want to start by asking you, what is culture in the context of a, a, a non-human primate? Yeah, I'll or say straight animal. away that I think there is no consensual definition and probably never will be any more than there ever was in sociocultural anthropology for Homo sapiens. And I think that's probably a good thing because we may well need different definitions for culture for different problems. If I'm tackling culture conceptually, I may need a different definition than if I'm tackling it uh, empirically, where an operational definition is important. But I think there are certain elements that are going to crop up in anybody's definition of culture. Obviously, social learning as opposed to individual learning. Some extent of persistence or endurance, maybe over generations. Um, some aspect of collectivity, uh, and so on. And standardization. I mean, there are a number of, of, of themes that are in, uh, in everybody's uh, definition of culture. Uh, what I've always said about uh, definitions of culture is, I don't care how you define it. Just make it precise. Make it operational. Make it, you know, make it feasible. And. I want to ask you a little bit about material culture and also the recent trend that you're uh, involved in, especially with some of your students, to combine disciplines between primatology and archaeology. Well, I think I have to say that two of the most important moves in my career were forced upon me. One was to, to, to turn to culture as an explanatory uh, force when the natural science tools that I had been given in my training as a zoologist did not suffice to explain what the chimpanzees were showing us. So in that sense, I turned to the social sciences out of desperation. Similarly, um, when I realized the extent to which we are trapped in the present with the field work that we can do now, there was this, this thought that it, can we actually take what we are seeing today back into the past by parasitizing archaeology and apply their methods so that we can have some idea about the time depth of what we're seeing at the present. And we don't know whether chimpanzees were cracking nuts at Basu for the last 400 years, for the last 400,000 years, or for the last 4 million years at the moment. And the only way we're going to find out is to do archaeology. How did that idea originally come up? I mean, it seems, seems rather intuitive and a nice logical extension, but at the same time, it's very recent. 
I, I'm not going to take too much credit because I think um, Julio Mercader showed that it could be done in Thai, whatever it was, five years ago, seven years ago. Um, a couple of people had, had been trained as archaeologists and tried to tackle chimpanzees in the field from an archaeological point of view, like Gene Sept, uh, even uh, Frederick Julian. But I think I needed to have collaborators who were genuinely interested in and knowledgeable about both fields. And I got lucky with a PhD student, uh, Susanna Carvalho. Susanna is a well-trained archaeologist, and she's a well-trained primatologist. And she's the core of whatever we've been able to do at Cambridge. Well, that's a good lead-in for me to ask kind of a selfish question, because I've only been to Basu before. And actually, the first time I went to Basu was I, I, I met you in Conakry. Mm -hmm. uh, you were coming from Basu with uh, Sugiyama Sensei from PRI. Um, and I'm just curious, from my own perspective, I'd like to know what your impression of that particular field site is and, and how kind of... I'm interested in kind of the range of variability between field sites from your perspective, because you've been to so many of them, probably all of them. Uh, it's got pros and cons like every field site. Mm -hmm. uh, and let me do the cons first. It's a small group. It's perilously close to minimal critical mass. Mm -hmm. And it's vulnerable because it's not in a protected area. And so that those sound like problems for a lot of West African chimps, right? Uh, With these isolated pockets. It certainly would apply to Fungoli. Uh, I'm not sure to what extent it, these days it applies to Thai, but they do have multiple groups in that mm -hmm. population. Sure. But the pros far outweigh those cons in, in, in two regards. One is that um, Matsuzawa has shown with the outdoor laboratory that you can do interesting and useful things with some variables being controlled, depending on the problem to, to varying extents, with the population of, of truly wild chimpanzees. The second thing is that certain things have been done at Basu, which as far as I know have never been done anywhere else, which is particularly human-chimpanzee relations. So Kim Hawkins' work. And um, that's a model that's going to become more and more important as there's more and more engagement, interaction, friction, whatever you want to call it, as things get tighter and tighter for chimpanzees in Africa. And what is encouraging about that is how well the Basu chimps have coped with living cheek to jowl with human beings for a considerable period. Now, I'm not saying everything's rosy, we know it's not. I mean, there are real issues there. But somehow, it, it's managing to, to carry on. I want to take that just a little bit further because at the end of your talk, you brought up um, as part of the future directions um, in, say, cultural primatology will be to learn more about how the, the chimpanzee cultures themselves may be affected by having such close contact and interactions with human populations as well? Well, it's clear that cultural adaptation, you know, uh, changing your behavior in response to changing circumstances, is one of the key issues with regard to culture. I mean, that's why we as a species are so successful. But at the same time, we have to keep in mind that cultural maladaptation can occur as well because we can make some collective decisions that turn out to be perhaps short-term payoffs but long-term major costs. 
And so uh, choosing to engage in crop breeding, uh, perhaps being forced into engaging in crop breeding because you lose your natural resource base and uh, instead you find an artificial substitute resource base, um, may lead to some, some happy meals, but it may lead to some long-term tears. And um, that's going to, presumably just going to become more and more of an issue. And so how much do you think that the human presence kind of feeds back onto the chimp behavior? And, it's, and things like direct, directly, like things like crop rating, but also kind of indirectly, like maybe a field, abandoned field becoming secondary forest, or chimps using human pads. Is that having a significant impact on their culture, even though humans are not there uh, directly impacting it? I, I think you're right to point out indirect as well as direct effects. And I think the direct effects, and, and so far I've been talking, or we've been talking about <clears throat> local people and chimpanzees. Of course, we need to talk about scientists and chimpanzees, and we need mm -hmm. to talk about tourists and chimpanzees, and we need to talk about right. know, other human groups. Um, and sometimes it may be tempting, or maybe it may be necessary, to talk about the more direct effects, for example, in terms of disease transmission. Right. But in the long term, Assuming those could be dealt with, the the more indirect effects are probably going to be the ones that are important. And uh, what what surprises me is, is two things about chimpanzees. One is their ability to to adapt to living daily lives where they interact with humans every day. And secondly, their tolerance at being able to do this uh, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, so sorry, we've gone off on this tangent talking about the situation in Basu, but just to return to kind of the bigger picture, mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering, what, what do you recommend for people that want to study chimps? Do you, and your approach has been the, the breadth, mm -hmm. and um, do you see, do you see the, the, your approach of the breadth and then the individuals who want to study depth at one site as kind of complementary, or what's the relationship like there? I can only speak from personal experience, and I'm not sure the extent to which it could be generalized, but I was lucky that my initial experience with wild chimpanzees was 13 months uh, without a break uh, at Gombe. Mm -hmm. So I went to a place that was well established and I got a good, you know, total immersion experience. And I would hope that before anyone went out and started flitting around from place to place, they would somehow ground themselves mm -hmm. in that kind of experience if, if it was possible to do so. Right. So I guess the answer is, to me, personally, the thing that's worked for me is a bit of depth and a bit of breadth. Mm -hmm. But the older I've got, and perhaps I hope the wiser I've got, then I've been able to make more out of the breadth than I would have done uh, when I was younger. Mm. I think now, let me just say one more thing, which is, you can only play the breadth strategy if people are generous and there's no reason why they should be altruistic. So if you're going to do the breadth thing, I think you have to figure out ways to do research that is mutually advantageous to mm. yourself and to your host. So thanks. Thanks both oh, for joining us in the Primate so Cast. You are most welcome. My pleasure. You have been listening to the Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology at the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. 
Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at the primatecast.